of you love church? Church is my favorite. Church is my favorite, and it gets such a bum rap all the time. And uh, so I just want to take uh, today and potentially next week, Travis and Pam, how are you? See, it's so hard for me to be up here because all of a sudden I see all my friends that I haven't seen in a long time. How's the baby doing in there? How, how long before you're due? Next month, it's coming. It's coming. Exciting. Exciting. Sorry. <laughs> I had to do that. I usually am able to contain myself. I, I usually am able to, you know, not burst out with excitement and questions I have for you. But that one, I just had to, had to do that one because I've been missing them. Amen? All right. So the church, I absolutely love church for that reason. Because church is where you get together with the best people on the planet. And they became the best people on the planet when they accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Because then all of a sudden they are your brother and your sister. Amen? And it does not matter if you have met them before or not. You are one of one mind and of one heart. Amen? So let's go ahead and pray and see what the Lord would have for us today. Father, in Jesus' name, Lord God, I thank you so much for this group of people here today. Thank you that you have planted us and placed us in a group today where we can worship your name together with amazing music, oh Father God. And we can lift your name high and sing praises to you. And then we can stop and hear the word and, and be encouraged and lifted up. And then we can go back out there and uh, fight our battles and win in Jesus' name. God, I just pray right now that your words would come forth and uh, change these lives. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay, so we're going to continue on with uh, our series on growing up. How many of you love growing up? How many of you, parents, be honest, have you ever looked at your children and said, would you grow up? Raise your hand. Oh, come on. That's it? How many of you have ever said that? Oh, you guys are fibbing. Half you are fibbing. Chanel, have you said that to little Hattie? Would you grow up? You know, this, this whole growing up business, I'm telling you. I want you to turn to your neighbor, though, right now. We're going to do something crazy. I've been having you kind of talk with each other. Hopefully you know each other now. But I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to share with them what your ultimate desire for life is. I know it's a deep question. It's really deep. I'm kind of taking you deep right away. What is your ultimate desire for life. Now, I don't know about you, but I have about 59 ultimate desires, but I do have one in particular, you know, something I'm really, really believing for. So just, just name one. I don't, we don't have 10 minutes here. Just name one. Okay. Name one ultimate desire. Go ahead. Like starting now. There's not a lot of chatter out there. Are you still thinking? Your ultimate desire. What is your ultimate desire? Okay, now, I don't know about you, but my ultimate desires have changed over, the world, over life. How would you agree? So when I was born, I was born a baby. I was. How about the rest of you? Were you born babies? Okay. My ultimate desire during that season of my life was a full tummy and a dry bottom. And I let everybody know, if I didn't get my full tummy and my dry bottom, I was going to let everybody know. And I did. And that was my ultimate desire in life. Amen? Ultimate desire. But you know what? After a while, I kind of figured out how to put food in my tummy and how to keep my little bottom dry. So I didn't have that as my ultimate desire anymore. Do you know what became my ultimate desire then? Red go-go boots. I needed them. White ones? Oh, no, you want the red ones, baby. You want the red. Ultimate desire, red go-go boots. And my mom didn't have finance. We were a single mom. She was a single mom raising me. I could not get my red go-go boots. And my aunt came to town, and guess what she bought me? Red. Can you just see me in my little red go-go The problem with those red go-go boots is my legs were so stinking skinny that they flapped all over the place when I walked. You know, it just did not have the right effect. So red go-go boots. And then after the red go-go boots, I'm telling you, my, my most ultimate desire was a bicycle. A bicycle. 
I mowed lawns, and my grandpa helped me buy a bicycle. My ultimate desire. I loved it. You know, every time one of my ultimate desires came true, I had to come up with a new ultimate desire. So after a while, in a new season, my ultimate desire was a driver's license. How many of you ever prayed the prayer, Father God, don't let Jesus come back until I can get my driver's license? I want my driver's license. Yes? So I got my driver's license. Then it was, Father God, don't let Jesus come back till I meet my husband and get married. I want to get married. Anybody ever pray that prayer? Father God, in Jesus' name, don't let Jesus come back until I can have kids. Right? So my ultimate desires have changed as I've grown. Have changed as my life has matured. God has an ultimate desire for you. Did you know that? He has an ultimate desire for you. My question is, do we know what his ultimate desire is for us? I want you to turn your word to Ephesians 4, if you would with me. Because God has an ultimate desire for you. He really does. What is that desire? Ephesians 4. We're going to start with verse 11. Ephesians 4, verse 11. If we get that up on the screens, I would absolutely love it. It was he, he is being God, he who has gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors, and some to be teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach the unity of faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature. God's ultimate desire for us is that we become mature. Everybody say mature. You know, I never knew if it was pronounced mature or mature. My mother always says mature. We got to mature. I don't know if I like that version. So I'm going to say mature. But God's ultimate desire for you is that you would mature. Now, our, like I said earlier, our human way with our own kids when we're getting kind of tired of their immaturity is we look at them and yell, grow up. But that's not how God does it. He's got a lot more patience. And God's given the church and the, every single believer incredible things called pastors and teachers, prophets, evangelists, amazing things to help you grow up to help you mature. To prepare God's people for the works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up until we all reach the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, and become mature, attaining to the full measure of the full, the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Maturity. What does maturity mean? Maturity means to be complete To be fully developed and fully grown, that is mature. Fully. Growing up into the fullness of the measure of Christ. I see Christ as just like huge guy on the cross, big, bigger than life, amazing. And I see me at the bottom of the cross going. (laughs) And God's ultimate desire is for every single one of us who start out at the foot of the cross Very little, very tiny, very immature, very unknowing of who this whole God thing is. Very little looking up at this, what, you want me to be like him? And he wants us to go through this process called maturing or maturing, where all of a sudden I am no longer that little itty-bitty infant at the foot of the cross looking up at God, at Jesus up there saying, how can I ever do that? And he wants us to grow until we join him. Sacrificing ourselves, laying down our own lives, and becoming like him. That's his ultimate desire for us. Ultimate desire. Now, every single living organism starts off immature. Every single one. Little itty-bitty. And it has to grow. It has to grow physically. Every human being has to grow emotionally. Every human being has to grow in every single way. Now, if I were God, I would have done it very differently. Very differently. I would have every organism, because who likes the pain of maturity? (laughs) Growing up physically, your body is hard work. I get growing pains. I remember having growing, ow, my knee, ow. 
Why? Why do we have to grow physically? Why weren't we just born, bam, done? I think I know why. Pam knows why. (laughs) She's carrying a baby. She knows what that means. We don't want to birth full-grown human beings, right? We don't want to do that. It's just not the way it works. But we also have to grow emotionally. Have you ever seen a little baby? The little sweet newborns. You know, I used to think those were little amazing things, but now I shudder because I know what's coming, you know? How many of you have watched that little baby newborn grow into a two-year-old? What happened? I am thoroughly convinced we've all been tricked because these babies are so cute when they pop out. But the pain of emotional maturity... Watching our mothers and and fathers with little bitty toddlers as they're stomping their feet and screaming, no! And you have to teach them to wait. And you have to teach them to stop. And you have to teach them to control themselves. And you have to teach them to love when they don't want to. (sighs) Maturing emotionally. It's very painful. I remember uh, growing up, my kids, when my kids were growing up, we would, have, we would have family game nights, and they were a disaster. How many of you have ever had disastrous game nights with families, with little kids? Absolute disaster. So we kind of started off. We'd get out the game board, and we'd lay out the pieces, and I would say, okay, people. Yeah, Mom. And they're like, I'm going to win. Who do you want to win? Me, me, me. No, that's the wrong answer. Who do you want to win? Silence. You want the other guy to win. Who, Jasmine, who do you want to win? Caleb. <laughs> Caleb, who do you want to win? Austin. Maybe. You know, I mean, they had to figure out this whole concept of putting others first. So painful. So painful. I personally would have had people when they were born, children born, popping out completely emotionally mature. They would pop out and say something like, Mom, you did such a good job. Thanks, that was rough. Do you want a back rub? Wouldn't that be fantastic if they came out like that? Thinking of others first. It just doesn't happen. They're very self-centered. It's all about them. You did all of that hard work pushing them out, and they sit there crying and bawling like they had a rough time. It's all about them. But we have to mature to a point where it's not about us anymore. It's about everyone else. Amen? Maturity. I personally would have had all of everybody born mature. We wouldn't have to go through all the pain, all the problems. I wish that pastors came out of seminary completely mature so they wouldn't make mistakes. But they don't. And the body of Christ gets to grow with us as we grow too. We get to mature together. When you come to Christ, you're considered a babe. 1 Peter 2, 2 says, Like newborn babes crave spiritual milk so that, you, uh, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. I don't know why, but for some reason, God loves the process. I wish it wasn't so. I don't know why. He has some kind of insane love of watching humanity have to mature. (laughs) But in his concept, in his economy, the process of maturation is a beautiful thing to him. The process of growing, because he set it up for every single soul to have to do it. God has two rules for maturity. Two rules. And I believe these are laws, kind of like the laws of gravity. They will never change until maybe we're transformed. The first rule or law of maturity is that you will never quit maturing. Look at your neighbor and say, you are not done. You are not done. You are going to mature for the rest of your life. Now, just about the time, and this is true about everything, my body has grown, but it's not done maturing. 
It seems like it'll mature all the way till the day I die. It changes all the time. How, how many of you guys could say amen to that? So physically, we're always maturing, right? Emotionally, about the time I think I've got it. About the time I think I'm something cool. About the time I think, you know, I have got this thing down. Something will happen and you will find me in the corner crying like a baby. Anybody agree with me? Just about the time I think I am some spiritual guru, something will hit and I will be found in the corner whining. What? Are you kidding me? God, where are you? What? And I find myself having to get back on the maturation wagon. Okay, honey, pull up your little, you know, pull on your big girl panties and we're going to grow some more here today. Maturation never stops. And about the time you decide you're going to stop maturing is about the time you're going to become very, very immature. So I'm going to challenge you. God will always be growing. Don't ever come to church and sit in the pew thinking you got it. Come like newborn babes, craving the, the milk of the word so that you can grow some more. Come on, people. We're not done. Rule number two is that God always places the immature with the mature. Always. When a baby is born, where does he put that baby? In a big warehouse with all the other babies? Can you imagine the disaster that would be? No. Where does, a, where does God put a baby? In the hands of two mature adults. God always places the, mature with, uh, the immature with the mature. Always. And both benefit. For you see, the immature brings life and energy and vivaciousness and loud and exciting and blah. And as older ones, we need that. We need that excitement and energy and life and vitality. But in that relationship, the older ones, the more mature, bring protection. They bring wisdom. They bring teaching. They bring security. It is so important to put maturity with immaturity. We both need each other. And if you ever find yourself, and you're a mature person, only surrounded by mature people, you're going to get really bored and dull sitting around being mature. You have to always have in your life immaturity because it brings excitement. Amen? (laughs) Immaturity. So two things. Number one, maturing never ends. And number two, he always places mature with immature. Because no matter, remember, if you're always maturing, there's always going to be people somewhere along the line. And wherever you stand, you are more mature than those people and you're less mature than those people. So that somewhere, always in your life, you have to find yourself planted in relationships where you are rubbing shoulders with those who are more mature than you. And with those who are less mature than you. So I would say to you, I would challenge you in your relationships. Do you have those that are farther along in life with you than you so that they can turn around and discipline you and teach you and, tra- and train you and give you security? You know what another, another thing that uh, older people give to younger people? A name. A name. A purpose. But you also always have to realize that in your life, that as you are maturing, part of maturity is turning around and grabbing someone who's less mature and bringing them with you. Amen? So do you have in your life ones that you are discipling, ones that you are teaching and training? It's huge. Huge. Absolutely huge. So those two rules. So God puts the immature with the mature, and that's what he calls families. And here on earth, there's, you know, it's a long process. They're very cute when they start off. They become problems fairly soonly ensue, right? The tantrums, the difficulties, the annoyances. My kids used to get so annoyed with each other. Oh, my. Absolutely. And they would be, but they're stuck with each other. See, Dwayne and I got to pick each other. They did not get to pick each other. They have to make it work, Right? They have to. Ooh, they have to. And, uh, you know, Caleb and Jasmine, they were this spitting image of Dwayne and I. And for some reason, with Dwayne and I, we have chemistry. We love each other. They did not. 
they hated what each other was, you know, because Jasmine was always trying to organize and control and fix and, and, you know, build. And Caleb, all he wanted to do was destroy and knock things down. And they did not, their chemistry had not arrived yet. It did not work. But they had to get along. Well, God does the same thing. God puts his babies in families, and those families are called churches. That's what this is. That's what this is. And it's amazing. Baby Christians are put in, and there's a long process. They're cute when they very first come into Christ. They're all excited, but then troubles ensue. Difficulties happen, right? It becomes tough, and that, but this is where they grow up. Acts 2. Turn over to Acts 2. I know that Chris taught on this a, a little while ago, a couple weeks ago. But there was a moment when the church of God, the church of Christ, the Christian church that you're sitting in right now, was born. Did you know that? Acts 2 was the story of how church started. There was a day, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, where there wasn't a church like this. It hadn't been born yet. Jesus had walked on the earth for 33 years. He, was, he died on the cross. He died, rose again, appeared to the disciples, told those disciples, go to, uh, go to Jerusalem, sit there, wait, pray, and I'm going to come and everything's going to blow up. So just you wait. So they did it. The 12 disciples plus the other 120 that had been kind of close to Jesus all went to Jerusalem. They were in the upper room. They were praying and praying. They were just obeying, praying and obeying. Everybody say, pray and obey. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. It was an amazing moment. Tongues of fire. They began to speak in other tongues. They ran out into the streets. Jerusalem was filled with people from all over the, all over the world, speaking many, many languages. And all of a sudden, here comes this group of uneducated Galilean crazies coming running out of the upper room, speaking in their language fluently about God, telling them all of these wonderful things about God. They were all confused. They literally, what are you doing? This is not right. You guys must be drunk. Peter said, absolutely not. He got up. He preached the first sermon. And 3,000 people came to the Lord that day. 3,000. Everybody say 3,000. That's a lot of babies. Peter and the disciples all of a sudden had 3,000 babies in their church. 3,000 babies. God was in the midst of maturing the disciples by giving them the immature to bring along. 3,000, think about it. 3,000 baby Christians now all of a sudden to teach and to train, to grow, to mature. Absolutely crazy. And once again, the rule is set in motion that God puts the immature with the mature. So there's 12 of them, then 120. How do you how do you do the math? If you divide 3,000 by that, it's about somewhere around I don't know. Do the math: 20 or 30 people per person to disciple. Very very cool. God had it all set up. He was all ready for this group of incredible babies to come in. So, but how did they do it? What did they do? You know, sometimes you want to read. Uh, parenting books as to how to raise a baby because you look at them and you're like, oh my word, what do I do with you? So you read the parenting books, right? Well, let's look to the word to see what God did, how they patterned this church now that had 3,000 babies. Think about That's a lot. That's a lot of people who do not know Christ or don't know anything about Christ that have to get mature now to change the world, right? So uh, in Acts chapter 2, Verse 42, um, actually, we'll, we'll just prior to that, verse 40, with many words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. 3,000. Ah, I don't know. What would we do if 3,000 people started coming to this church? Do you know what would happen with you? I would assign you about 30 people. And when you thought... As you're doing your life, you, you know, sometimes we think we got it together, but sometimes we're like, yeah, I'm not much. All of a sudden, you are the mature one. How would you like that? I will give you a list of names, 30 people. You're going to raise them up in Christ. How would that mature you? It would happen, wouldn't it? Because when we put ourselves in a place where there's a draw being placed on us, we grow. And I will guarantee you right now that the body of Christ 
is not placing themselves in a place to be drawn upon to grow, but they are just sitting and doing nothing. They are more self-absorbed than others absorbed. I want to put that challenge out to you. I don't care who you are or what you are. Look around you and find people who are not as mature as you are so that you can become their leader. And in leading them, you will mature. And you will grow up into the fullness of Christ. And I'm believing. I'm praying. People, I pray. I pray every day. I pray every minute of every day that we would have 3,000 people come through that door so that you would have to take on 30, so that you would grow and you would lead and you would step into the place that you've been made to be. So better watch out. Or go to another church because it's coming here. So back to Acts 2. Verse 42, how did they do it? What did they do? How did they, how did they grow these kids up? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many unders, wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to everyone, anyone who, as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So not only did they have 3,000, now they're getting more every day. So you used to have a list of 30, now you've got 40 or 50. How's that sound? So now what we're going to do, we're going to take a turn now. And what we're going to do is we're going to start a little bit of a series And I want to teach you, I want to bring to you environmental growth factors that help you mature. This is how they did it. The first thing that they listed here, today we're going to make one point. Today we're going to do this one thing. The first thing they did, verse 42, is they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So let's break that down. The apostles' teaching. This is vital, absolutely vital for these people's growth. If they had not had a devotion, if these 3,000 new believers, as well as all the ones that were being added daily, were not devoted to the apostles' teaching, they would not have become what they were going to become, which was a mighty force that begins to invade the entire world and earth. And within a few, just a few short years, they're going to be asked their life of, they're going to have Nero standing in front of them saying, either bow to me or die. Many of these Christians, these believers, these 3000 that came that one day, plus all the ones that were added, many of them gave their lives up for Christ. Many of them were burned at the stake. Many of them were made to be the torches that lit the parties that Nero would put on every night for his his court as they were doing sexual liaisons and evil, evil things. Many of those 3,000 people were the ones that laid their lives down for that birthing of that church. How did they go from being absolutely unaware of who God is to that point? They matured. As long as life is only about me, I will not lay my life down for Christ. I'm going to protect my life. Remember I told you, immaturity is all about ourselves. Maturity is when we start living for something else. Those 3,000 people matured to such an extent that within just a few short years, as I said, they were laying their lives down. They were giving it up. They grew like nothing else. I don't know what the future holds for us as Christians entirely. We know that the the future is an increase of the kingdom, but there have been times throughout history where that has required, that has required a body of godly people who are willing to lay their lives down because it's in the blood of the martyrs that comes forth a great harvest, a great move of God. My mom and dad struggled and, and just poured out their lives for Guatemala. And there were areas where he couldn't get into. There were areas out there. But when his plane went down right smack dab in the middle of a village that did not have a church, all of a sudden, guess what? There was a church. And guess what? That church was filled with people 
For the blood of the martyrs brings forth a great harvest. And I would say to you even today, your maturity, I'm not prophesying death to you, but yes, I am. (laughs) A death to your own personal desire for your own self, but that you would begin to lay that down for something greater and bigger. That's called maturity. I'm here to call this house into a place of incredible strength and growth to where life is no longer about you, but it is Christ crucified in you. Come on, people. How many of you want to mature? Even though it might cost you your life. I beg of you, mature. The apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Who were the apostles? They were the 12 that spent many, their whole entire three years of their life, the last three years of their life, hanging with Jesus. They were doing their own thing. They were working on their nets. A man walks by and he says, come follow me. And they got up, dropped their nets, and followed him. He was a stranger. They did not know him, but they had a drawing to him. My question is, and I don't know, but how many did he call that didn't get up? He was walking. How many did he call? And they said, now I'll just stay right here. I'm just being... You know, we don't know. The Bible never talks about that. But could it be that as he walked, he called? And there were those that did not respond? And as Jesus then went through the next three years of his ministry, healing and teaching and just turning the world upside down, how do you think those people felt? Man, I missed the boat. I'll come now. Maybe they did. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out. But 12 said yes. Dropped everything they had and followed him. And they began a journey of maturation that was going to lead them eventually to every single one of them giving their lives up. Except for one who they boiled him in oil and he survived. Whew. (sighs) Okay. Don't get me wrong. I'm not calling you to radical lifestyle. It's not me. It's really God that's calling you to that. I'm just the delivery. So these 12 people, they walked, they ate, they slept, they ate, they got up in the morning, they walked down the path. They were with Jesus 24-7. They were with him. They saw, they heard his teachings. They, heard, they were filled with him. They, they felt, they touched, they saw, they heard, they watched, they learned. They were the ultimate, by the time they were done with these three years, they could wear the breast bracelet that said WWJD because they knew exactly what Jesus would do. They were saturated in him. Far more than even what we got out of the, what they wrote later on about what happened. In fact, I can't remember, I think it was John said, the words that we saw, we couldn't even put it into a book. It was so amazing. These apostles were incredible. They'd been steeped in Jesus. So when the 3,000 were born into the kingdom, the first thing that started happening was teaching. Teaching. They began to teach. The word teach or taught in the Greek is didasko. And what it means is the transference, the transference of knowledge and concept. So I have knowledge and concept inside of me, and you don't. Your, your brain is blank of that thing. And so I am going to teach you. I'm going to take a framework. I'm going to take knowledge. I'm going to take information, and I'm going to speak it into your life. And inside of your head, you're now going to begin to build a framework that is actually like an edifice that helps you to know and to understand who God is, what God is, why God is, what we know of everything like that. It absolutely will change everything about you. When you learn something, something changes in your life. 
When I learned to drive, my life was transformed. Right? When I learned, I went to nursing school. I spent two years under the teaching of these amazing profs and nurses that had gone before me that knew how to heal the body in the physical way. My brain was a new brain when I came out the other side. I had framework and, and concept and ability and knowledge and I could help. Well, the concept of teaching is huge when it comes to the kingdom of God. Because you can get all the warm fuzzies that you want sitting in the presence of God. But if you don't change your brain, you're going to walk out a warm fuzzy and be the same person doing the same stupid things and thinking the same stupid thoughts. Laugh at me with me here. Now, don't get me wrong. We love the presence. Because the presence fires up the heart. But if you don't bring in teaching into your mind and change the very framework with which you process life, you will not become like God. You won't have his thoughts. Do you see what I'm saying? Teaching is very important. And so the apostles taught all the time. The very first thing that he says here is teaching. But how did they get their teaching? Well, they got it from Jesus. Funny thing. If you look through the Gospels, every time you find Jesus interacting with people, what's he doing? Teaching. Let's look at some of this because this is incredible. Matthew 7, 28. Turn to Matthew 7, 28. It, how many of you guys have the Bible that has red letters? So you can see where Jesus' words are, right? So flip back to Matthew 5. Let's start at Matthew 5. I'm going to start, I'm going to just mess with you back there on that projection. Matthew 5, verse 1. When he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his disciples came to him. Wow, Jesus is about ready to sit down and do some teaching. He's going to start talking, and his disciples didn't want to miss one stinking word. So where was his disciples at right then? Were they out getting coffee? Were they mowing the lawn? (laughs) Were they, you know, doing the stuff of life? Absolutely not. They dropped everything. Once again, this is how a disciple is known for their discipling-ish, to be a disciple, is because they drop what they're doing and run to their master. They run to the one who's leading them and guiding them. Where are the disciples? Right there. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and he sat down. His disciples came to him and he began teaching them, saying. And he opens up into one of the most beautiful, incredible sermons. It's called the Sermon... What's it called? The Sermon Sermon on the Mount? This one is? Okay. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You're never going to keep up with me on that, so don't worry about that. So just, we're going to go through this. Then he says, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be salty again? There's no good for it. We've got to throw it out. What? You're going to throw me out? I mean, he was just blasting them with concepts. The next paragraph down, don't you think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets, but I've come to fulfill them. And if your righteousness does not exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? He's blasting them. He's blasting them with thoughts and concepts. They'd been thinking that their righteousness of just doing a little bit was enough. But he's beginning to blast them, change the framework within their minds. Murder, you've heard it said that if, uh, do not murder, but anyone who, and anyone who is murder will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who's angry at his brother will be subject to judgment. What? He's leveling them. He's reaching into their minds and changing their thoughts. He's laying down new rules now, a new, new way of going about life. Then he blasts them some more. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that any of you who look on a woman with lust in their heart has already committed adultery. He's slamming them. This is not a feel-good pop sermon. This is a, I want to get inside of you and change you sermon. 
It's been said anyone who divorces his wife must give him a gift, a certificate of, um, a gift certificate, a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces, come back to me, anyone who divorces his wife except for marital unfaithfulness causes her to become an adulteress. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person for someone who strikes you on the right church cheek, not church, cheek, turn the right they hit you on the left, turn it to the right. What? This is a whole new lifestyle. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for them. For those who persecute you, that you may become the sons of your father in heaven. Be careful. Do not, not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen. When you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets. He's changing their lifestyle. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who pray standing in the synagogues, but go into your closet. How many of you have seen War Room? Go see it. When you fast, don't look somber like the hypocrites do, but do it in secret. Don't worry. Don't judge. Ask, seek, knock. I'm just kind of going through. He's leveling them with his teaching. Enter through the narrow gate for the gate that is wide and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow is the road that will lead to life. And only a few will find it. He's, 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 he's just reaching in. Watch out for false prophets. And now finally... Chapter 7, verse 28, when he's all finished, and there's more that he shared, there's more that he did, there's more that he was changing and rearranging in these people's lives. It says, when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he taught as one of his authority, not as their teachers of the law. That word amazed there means absolutely struck, as if with a hammer to flatten them. Jesus' teachings were like a sledgehammer that loves to come in to our own thoughts and our own ways that we have already constructed in our hearts. And he loves to come in with the sledgehammer of the Holy Spirit and absolutely flatten it and say, no, I'm making you into a new man. You're going to think like I think. You're going to think the thoughts God has for you. You're going to live differently. You are going to become something. And that cannot be done necessarily by just sitting in a, a, a goose bumpy presence place. You've got to hear the word. You've got to hear what he thinks because it's going to challenge you. It's going to be like a sledgehammer coming and smashing what you have set up in your mind to be your way. Jesus taught all the time. Flip over now to Matthew twenty two thirty three. We got to be done. I'm just barely getting started. Let's actually skip to Mark one twenty one. Mark one twenty one. I want you to see what Jesus was doing. Teaching is life. We have to hunger after it. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to what? He began to what? Ah, so if you're going to be around Jesus, you're going to hear some words. You're going to hear some teaching. The people were amazed at his teaching. Once again, they are hammered. They're floored. They're what? You want to change what? This is how I've always done. No, What? He's beating the bad stuff right out of him. The bad thinking. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, Jesus says sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently, came out of him with a shriek. And the people were all so amazed. Now they were amazed before, but now they're so amazed because the teaching has now been mixed with power. They were so amazed that they asked each other, what is this, a new teaching? And with authority, he gives orders to evil spirits and they obey. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. Now, John, turn over to John 14. 
John 14. We're going to start with verse 14. John 7. Did I say, what did I say? John 7. Sorry, John 7, verse 14. I get excited, and then I can't think good. (sighs) Work with me here, people. John 7, verse 14. Not until halfway through the feast did Jesus go up to the temple courts and begin to teach. The Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get uh, get such learning without having studied? And here is the answer. And this is the crux of everything. My teaching is not my own. This is Jesus talking. My teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. The words Jesus was teaching had power to flatten because those words were coming straight from the throne room of God Almighty himself. When Jesus was teaching, he was getting a download from Father God and he was teaching and that's what gave power to absolutely rearrange and flatten every thought process, every imagination, everything that had risen up against him. It was the fact that Jesus' teachings were not the teaching of a man, but they were the teaching of God coming through that man. So now Jesus dies. The apostles have been hanging out with Jesus. They have been filled now with the Holy Spirit and when they open their mouth, they begin to experience found on what Jesus had heard from the Father, and now they become amazing, astounding teachers. And that teaching, that word that came forth, that was coming forth out of them, had the power to transform 3,000 people. I would like to say to you, if you have walked your life, and you have not changed... If you are not a different person, if you're not more Christ-like, if you're not more mature than you were yesterday, the week before, a month ago, then people of God get under the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Yield your mind, yield your thoughts, yield the very framework of how you see life to him and allow him to come in with the Holy Spirit sledgehammer and smash you to pieces. Let him come in with the wrecking ball of his thoughts to change the way you think. I could give you a hundred right now, but I don't have time. I'm late. We have the best part of the sermon because I have a story to tell you right now. Have any of you ever heard of Augustine? I'm going to read you a story about Augustine. Because some of you are sitting here thinking, I am just a normal person. Okay, I am too. Every person was. Every single one of those disciples were normal people. Normal. Maturity. It never stops. Don't you dare ever stop. God puts the immature with the mature and the mature with the immature. Consider your lifestyle right now. Consider the people that are around you. Do you have ones drawing you, pushing you, shoving you? You usually want to avoid them. Well, stop avoiding them. Call them up and say, help me, shove me some more. And thirdly, put teaching in your life. Augustine. Augustine was born in the mid-300 A.D., He was from North Africa. He was born in a small town outside of Carthage. So he was an African man. Amazing. I love it. God does not see cultural barriers. But he calls. All of the church fathers came from different sectors, different places. Augustine was African. I never knew that. Augustine. His mother was a praying mother and uh, an absolute godly woman. His father was a pagan, but they saw great delight in Augustine, great ability. So when he was old enough, when he was in the mid-teens, about 16, they sent him off to university to be schooled in the best schools. He was going to become a rhetorician. It's called a rhetoric, rhetoric, I don't know what it's called, but it's an orator. It's a teacher. It's a speaker. Because he had such great possibilities. And he went to first Carthage and then Rome. 
And when he, it's just the same. Life is the same. He had been drawn and ro- raised up by a mother, a praying mother, a godly mother. But when he got sent off to school, things started getting, he started having other things planted in his head. He began to see the licentious lifestyle. He got draw, drawn in to especially the sexual immorality of the day. He developed sexual addictions that began to destroy his inner man. He began to struggle with this. But what's worse is his spiritual growth quit. He stopped going to church, even though his mother was calling him up every other day. Did you go to church yesterday? No, mom, I'm really busy with school. I don't think I will be. Come on, baby, you need to be in church. She was a praying mom. Her name was Monica. So here's where this picks up. To a young man schooled in the classics, the Bible was frankly unimpressive in style and filled with crude stories that seemed unworthy of God. Augustine was desperate to find wisdom, to shed light on the mysterious battle he observed in his own soul between good and evil. Yet the Old Testament held up heroes like David and the patriarchs who seemed as much victims to the passions of life as he himself. He spent quite a few years going around after he'd gotten out of college and he was at or university or schooling or whatever they called it back then. And he took up positions in different cities and he was getting very, very successful in all of that. His mom followed him around. Now he'd fallen in love with a woman, but the woman wasn't in his station, so he couldn't marry her. So for years, she was his concubine. They had a son, but he was never married. And he continued his sexual addictions. He searched for truth. He knew there was truth, but he could not ever seem to find it. Next page here. So finally he landed in a town called Milan, and Monica, his wife, or his mother, followed. So Augustine and his family got settled in Milan. Monica was immediately off to the cathedral. She told him that he'd be impressed with the bishop, who was himself a master of rhetoric and the former governor of northern Italy. Don't tell me pastors are supposed to be dummies. They're the leaders. So Augustine came to church on Sundays merely to study Ambrose's oratorical style. Sorry. Years later, he would write about his experience in the form of a prayer addressed to God. By his eloquent sermons in, the, in those days, his, he zealously provided your people with the fat of your wheat, the gladness of your oil, and the sobering intoxication of your wine. All unknowingly, I was led to you by him, so that through him I might be led, while fully knowing it, to you. That man of God received me in a fatherly fashion, and as an exemplary bishop, he welcomed my pilgrimage. I began to love him. At first, not as a teacher of the truth, which I utterly despaired to find in your church, but as a man who was kindly disposed towards me, I listened carefully to him as he preached to the people. As he came to hear Ambrose Sunday after Sunday, the beauty of the Ambrosian chant began to work on him, moving the young professor to tears, and the content of Ambrose's message began to work on him as well. As Ambrose explained the scriptures, they suddenly began to make sense. Ambrose taught that beneath the literal sense of those troublesome Old Testament figures and events, there was a profound spiritual meaning that prepared for, prefigured and predicted Christ in his church and the institutions of the New Covenant. Ambrose was, had learned from the great origin and other Eastern fathers that the humble surface of the Bible concealed truths of meaning that were truly exhaustible, inexhaustible. Confronted by Ambrose's spiritual interpretation of the scripture, the rationalistic objections that Augustine had against the Bible and the Catholic faith began to crumble. True questions remained, but at least Augustine was now ready to enroll himself in catechism. Perhaps he would learn more from this bishop who personally instructed him. Augustine had found the spiritual father for whom he had been searching for and for whom Monica had been praying. God puts the immature with the mature. Do you understand how absolutely vital it is that we take on someone to disciple? He goes through his life. He does many, many things. In fact, he writes a book that absolutely turned Christianity on his head. He wrote a book called The Confessions. 
And it was a story of his journey, a story of his sexual fight through all of his addictions and through his troubles and how hard it was and how after coming to Christ, he, he came to Christ and felt victory but yet still struggled. And, and he became a very real man, just like you and I sitting here. You sitting here, you have struggled. You continue to fight. But it was the relationship that he found with one more mature that drew him out. He became a bishop bishop himself. And here is the final surmise of his life. No church father except Origen produced anything remotely resembling Augustine's work in breadth, depth, and impact on posterity. It is estimated that Augustine preached three to 4,000 homilies in his years of, in Hippo. That's the name of the town that he was in. Only about 500 survive, but when you put these surviving homilies together with his extent letters and treaties, the, the total of Augustine's work numbers over 4 million words. Posidius, his family uh, friend and biographer, put it this way, he who says he has read all of Augustine lies. His writings became the lifeline of the Western church throughout the subsequent dark ages of chaos and barbarian domination. Over the course of the next six or seven hundred years, the monasteries in, the, in Western Europe were the only places where the light of learning were kept burning. And what were the monks reading and copying? The Bible, of course, and the works of Augustine. The power of growing He could have stayed that messed up man. The power of placing yourself in a relationship with someone who's going to kick you along and keep you moving in the kingdom. And the power of the scriptures and their words and their concepts and their ability to tear down imaginations and rebuild framework. If that's not happening in your life right now, if you are not growing and learning, if the foundations of your world are still not being changed, but you have feel that you have already attained and you have stopped and you've stagnated, I pray to you right now. I ask that the Lord would first of all give you a fire to grow. A fire to learn. Who is this God? Who is this Jesus? What does he have to say? And then secondly, that you would pursue relationship. Pursue teaching. Let's all stand. Band, come on up. I've gone over time. Forgive me, it's a habit of mine. But hopefully, your hearts right now are open, rent, desirous. I don't care how old you are, how long you've been in the kingdom, how, how long, what you've been through. Get on the continual path of growth. Don't let it stop. Don't let it stop. Amen? Don't let it stop. I, w- I just want the music to just start playing here in a second. I want you to just take a moment and just close your eyes right now. I want you to just close your eyes. We live life in a physical realm that has a lot of demands and a lot of yelling and screaming and needing and work and everything you did last week is all broken already. I want to encourage you to not just sow to the physical realm, but sow to your spiritual realm. Sow to your spiritual heart. Sow to to your spiritual life. Turn off the TV. I call it the brain binky. You don't think a thought when you're on that brain binky, but you're soaking in their thoughts. Turn off the TV. Read a book. Get together with somebody. Develop relations. I don't have time. Well, you know what I think you do. What can your life be like? As you add people into your life, as you grow, God wants to turn you into a life-changing, world-shaking, amazing thing. Let his words soak into you. Let his words smash your ways of thinking. Amen? God's good. His word is good. I want to open the altars. I want the altar uh, workers to come up. If you want, if you just right now feel the Lord just tugging on your soul with these words, come on up. 
Ask the Lord to, to mature you. Yeah, prayer, prayer warriors, come on up right now. Let's just close out with worship. Let this word settle in your heart. If you have to go, I understand I've gone late. But if you can even spend a moment, a, a moment or two, just seeking him and solidifying this word in your heart, it would be fantastic. Amen? Come forward for prayer if you'd like. In Jesus' name.